That's our new series. It's called Garden, and it's about cultivating life together. I want to show you, orient you to this new series by talking to you about a couple of benefits of life together, a couple of benefits of belonging to something bigger than, than ourselves. Uh, the first benefit is simply that we see where we need to grow. We see where we need to grow. When you have people around you that are counting on you, people you're investing in, you begin to see and expose where you need to grow. It's a little like what I hear from parents, you know. I hear young parents say regularly, I thought that I was a pretty, you know, humble person. I thought I was a, a pretty uh, unself-centered person until I had children. I remember uh, when, when we had children, uh, they were just a few months old, and I was in the middle of the night trying to put a pacifier into a mouth, right? And uh, Beth leaned into the room like, like uh, Mr. Miyagi talking to the karate kid, you know, when he's trying to just sort of stick his hand, hand through, the, uh, through, the, through the droplets. You know, I was trying to get that pacifier in the mouth. And I turned to her and I said, doesn't he know I'm trying to help him? And she said, no, I don't think he does. <laughs> because he's four months old. You, you feel it. You experience it. That a lot of times we orient life around our convenience. But when people around you are depending on you and you're investing in them, you begin to see where you need to grow. Second benefit of life together, belonging to one another, is that you gain wisdom. You have an instant counsel of many. Wisdom is found in the counsel of many. And isn't it true that that your worst mistakes, your bad decisions were those independent ones. The ones where you said, I'm, just, I'm going to decide this by myself, right? I'm going to do what I want to do, right? Aren't, those the t- aren't your worst decisions the times when you did that and ignored the counsel of many around you? The other benefit of life together, belonging to one another, is that we go further together. You can go faster alone, but we can go further together. You know, when you see something like what's going on in Ukraine, and you think, I'm just one person. And then you come here, and we pool our resources. And, you know, we gave thousands of dollars to Ukraine, but because we have established partnership, a partnership with the Outreach Foundation, we're we're looking towards uh, collectively just our own little evangelical reformed world. Uh, We're we're shouting at at a million dollars raised for Ukraine. And, And you can go to the Outreach Foundation and see... The, the four different partners that they have in Poland where, 30, where, where, where almost five million people have emigrated from Ukraine. I'm just one person, and yet when we come together, when we belong to one another, when we, when we depend on each other, when we invest in one another, you begin to see where you need to grow. You begin to see that there's a council of many available to you, and you begin to see how we can go further together. Yes, we can go faster alone, but we can go further together. So that's, that's, that's where we're going. For the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about life together, cultivating it like a garden, you know, because garden in, a garden is interdependent, you know. I love little snapdragons. I've always loved them since I was a kid, just squeezing them and making them talk, you know. But, uh, you know, snapdragons keep the deer away, 
and, and, and marigolds keep the, the rabbits away. And, you know, you, you, like, the, like they say, like the old expression, uh, no tomato is an island, right? Okay, it doesn't go like that. But, but tomatoes form as a plant in a garden. You can see that we thrive together. We belong. We're called to belong. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at the way, first and foremost, of course, we're called to belong to God. And I want to ask the question. Here's the orienting question for, uh, for the message this morning. How can you be sure you belong to God? How can you be sure you belong to God? As we go through Romans 8, the chapter of Romans 8, through this series, let's start by asking, how do we get the assurance that we belong to God? And the answer is that you count the cost. You count the cost. From the Word of God, Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, the law of the Spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live in accordance to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live in accordance to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Who dwells in you. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, all, Father, all flesh is like the grass and its glory like the flower. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God, help us to embody your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're counting the cost so that we can have assurance that we belong to God. Don't you want to know? I mean, how do, you, how do you grow in the confidence that you belong? That he's got you. You belong to God. How do you grow in that confidence? You count the cost. We're going to look at the cost that is the debt and the cost that is paid this morning so that you can understand how you grow in confidence that you belong to God. First, you grow in confidence that you belong to God by counting the cost that is the debt. <laughs> because when you, when you really count the cost of it, now listen to this, listen to this. When, when you count the cost of the debt and you see how big it is, 
you're going to stop trying to pay it. Let me say that again. When you really count the cost that it's, it's too big for you to pay, that it's God-sized, when you count that cost, that debt, when you really see it, when you feel it, when you experience it, when you understand it, then you'll stop trying to pay it. A lot of times what we think of is Christianity. We think of Christianity as just this, this little thin thing. We think of Christianity as just like second chances to try harder. That, that we just sort of mess up and God gives us a second chance. That, that he's just sort of helping us through life, right? That Christianity is about, uh, that the gospel is really about just second chances. That, uh, that we need some help. That, that, um, that he does a lot to help us, but, but that we do some too. That's a real thin view of Christianity. It's a very weak strain of Christianity. No, <laughs> we don't need a little help. We don't, we don't need just a little, uh, uh, we, we don't need just a little procedure, heart procedure. We need a heart transplant. We need new life. Uh, because here's what happens. When, when you and I just think of Christianity as sort of second chances to just try harder, right? We're, we're actually not really internalizing just how big the debt is, and, and we're trying to pay that debt. And what happens is, is this, and, and you know what, you, you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about, is your inner critic starts telling you, you're not trying hard enough. You're not doing enough. You're not being enough. You're not going far enough. You're not meriting enough. It's like a broken record. You know, broken record, I can, I can use that metaphor now because uh, vinyl is coming back, right? You know, when, when a record has a little scratch on it and it goes around and it hits that scratch, and it plays the same line again. And that inner critic just says, you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You're not trying hard enough. Try harder. Try and try again. It's a very weak view of Christianity, of the gospel. But when you understand how big the debt is, when you recognize that, that the behaviors that we all exhibit and the needs that we see, and, and the ways that we sometimes the wheels come off, and we say, "Did I say that? Did I do that? Did I des- decide that? Did I go there? Did I did I do that?" And we see that. And when you make the connection to the human condition, how great the debt is—that it's a god-sized debt—then you will stop trying to pay that debt by trying and trying and trying again. It, it, it reminds me of this scene. That the most poignant scene to me, almost in any movie, uh, is that scene in Schindler's List. Arthur Schindler is uh, a Christian who had been employing Jews throughout World War II in his factory to create weapons that didn't work on purpose, right? He was creating, he, they were building shells that would not explode. They were, they were making bullets that would not shoot. And he was employing Jews so that they would not be sent to the concentration camps. Thousands. He saves thousands of lives. But and I, you know, this is a, based on a true story. I don't know if this part of it is true. But it is so poignant at the end of this movie where, 
where they, the war is over and all the workers are coming out and they have, um, one, of the, one of the workers has had his gold tooth extracted so that they can, uh, that they can uh, craft a ring, a gold ring for him and give it to him as, as a thank you. And they're giving him the ring. And, and, and he begins to reflect on, on all that he has done and all that he has not quite done. And he begins to think of the cost of the pin on his, his lapel pin, of, of the car. And he, he begins to shide himself saying, why did I keep that car? It could have been two more people saved from the gas chambers. And begins to weep. He begins to, to, to feel the weight and the burden of what he did not do. Why? Because he realizes that no amount of good deeds is good enough can bridge the gap over the human condition. No, he wasn't Hitler. No, he wasn't uh, on, the, on the wrong side of history, but he still recognized, he still made the connection. It's powerful. You see, he still made the connection between his humanity and the common debt of humanity, of the human condition. You see, so, so often we, we sort of say, well, I'm not Hitler or I'm not a Nazi, or I'm not a bad guy, or I'm doing all these good deeds. But you see, in that moment, he recognizes the condition. He recognizes that trying and trying again, we don't need just a little bit of help. Like God does a lot, but we, we do a little. No. We need to lay it down and say, the debt is too big. It's too big. Because when you and I recognize it's a God-sized debt, then we'll stop trying to pay it. This is one of the most beautiful passages of all human history. There is therefore now no condemnation. You see how big the debt is? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, watch the contrast, the law of the spirit of life, he's playing on this idea of law. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, too weak in the flesh, by trying and trying and trying again, by getting a little help from God. What the law could not do, what our behavior couldn't do, what good deeds and merit couldn't do, God did, sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn you. He condemned the old you in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the full debt, may be met in you, who no longer walk according to try and try again, but according to the Spirit, a gift of new life through trust. You see, the debt is massive. It's huge. It's the human condition, and we're all participants in it. Whether you're Arthur Schindler who's looking and seeing that he could have sold that car and saved a couple of more lives, or whether you're on the wrong team. It's a human condition. And when you make the connection, you see how big that debt is? When you make the connection the way Arthur Schindler did, that even though he did all that he, he could, he didn't do quite enough as he, he might have done, and he makes the connection to the human condition, you stop trying to pay the debt that God wants to pay for you. No condemnation now means something to you, that you belong to God. It's a done deal.
No condemnation. When you stop trying to pay, when you, st- when you understand how big that debt is, you'll stop trying to pay it. When you say, well, Tim, how does, that, how does that assure me that I belong to God? I mean, really, how, how does just knowing that he covered the debt, that there is a debt, and it's huge, and it was too big for me, and that it's God-sized, how does that help me feel a sense of assurance that I belong to God? Well, look at the fact that that debt was paid. You see, when you see what someone is willing to pay for something, you know this, right? What's your house worth? Well, what's somebody, worth, what, what, what's somebody willing to pay for that house? When you see what someone is willing to pay for something, then you know it's worth. Let me say that again. When you, when you recognize, when you internalize, when you, when you see what someone is willing to pay for something, what are they willing to pay? What was God willing to pay for you? Then you see you experience, you know your worth. You know, if, if a teacher says to you, uh, t- says to the class, what is two plus two? And somebody next to you says, four. And then the teacher turns to you and says, do you have anything to add? Like, would you like to embellish on that answer? Is there something more that you'd like to say to the answer of two plus two? Equaling four, is there, is there something more that you'd like to tell the class? You know what you should say? No, there's nothing. <laughs> it was done. It's a done deal. Paid in full. I mean, the, the full answer is verse three. God did what, what, what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh. We know what's right and wrong. We're born with it. Romans 1 sets this whole thing up and it says, you know, we understand, we know there's an intuition that there's right and wrong, that there's a place where I stop and you start, and we violate that time and time again. We know that we cannot measure up to our own standards. We certainly can't measure up to God's standard. We know it. Weak as it was in the flesh, God did, sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement may be met in you. You see, that's the answer, the full answer. Four. Two plus two is four. You see what you're worth. The full answer, the full payment of the debt. I understand that there was a, um, a painting of Leonardo da Vinci that was sold recently. The, the name of the painting is Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. I went to take a look at it. It's beautiful. It's a picture of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, image, uh, imagination of what Jesus looks like looking at you. You know how much uh, somebody paid for it? I don't know who it is, but somebody paid $450 million for this canvas with, with colored paint on it. $450 million. I mean, I don't make that in a year. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's a, lot. That's a lot of money to pay for an image of Christ. I wonder. I'd love to talk to the person who bought that. Nobody ever paid that much. Now, they estimate that, that uh, one of his other paintings, you may have heard of this one, Mona Lisa, is worth maybe twice that, but 
It's never been sold that, you know, you know, at that level. This is the most anybody's ever paid for anything, like, like a work of art. And I wonder, I'd, I'd love to talk to the, the, the buyer of this, the savior of the world. You, you, you saw that this painting was worth $450 million. I wonder, I wonder if in looking at this painting, he made the connection and said, $450 million is nothing compared to what Salvador Mundi, the savior of the world, paid for me. When you see what someone's willing to pay for something, then you know it's worth. And, and here, here's, the, here's the point and purpose of living in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. You know, th- throughout, throughout Romans... There are lots of different ways that Paul addresses the Roman church. But when it gets to chapter 8, he says, y'all. Yeah, he's southern. I mean, he, I, I didn't realize this. Paul grew up in the south. No, he didn't really. But, but there is, in Greek, there's a way of saying, not you, just individually you, but you all, y'all, together. And here's the beautiful thing about what, what, what Romans chapter 8 is saying to us is that Life together can help us experience, first and foremost, that we belong to God. That when we come together and worship him, when we learn more about him, when we, when we look and remind ourselves, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper into our emotions, our psyche, our lifestyle, our confidence of how deep the debt is and yet how much he was willing to pay. And you begin to experience, we begin to experience together as a fellowship, you're worth it. You're worth it. This is what you're worth. And we get out of this cycle of try and try and try harder, of second chances, and I'll try again, and God, you just give me a little bit more help. But then, then you begin to develop a different kind of motivation for your life. Not, oh gosh, I, I, I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, accumulate more merit or I've got to stop doing that or I've got to start doing this. You get out of that. You see, when you, when you understand your worth, you have a different kind of fuel for your life. It's more clean burning. It's called gratitude. See, this is what Paul's getting at. Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit draws from a different fuel. No longer the fuel of fear, which only, it burns hot. But just for a short period of time, fear burns hot, right? When you're afraid of something, you're just like, oh, I'm, okay, I'm going to snap too. I'm going to fall in line. But see, gratitude burns over a long period of time. You know, some of you uh, made a decision for Christ out of fear. And, uh, and I, I don't want to discount that or say that there wasn't anything authentic about it or that God can't use that. I think he does. He certainly does. Some of those stories that you have about decision are beautiful stories. But the problem with just sort of uh, thinking of your faith as this one-time decision that you make and then you try and try and try again is that you don't get to the place where you're burning gratitude fuel. You're not motivated by the love of God. You're not, you're not just simply spurred on to love and good deeds out of something other than selfish motives. And so there's no real change. And so I think... Instead of having just a decision story about 
what happened once upon a time and how you made a commitment to Christ, I think, I think we need to develop dependence stories, dependency stories. Here's one, that time when you went through the desert, right? That time when you thought God was absent and, and it just felt like there was no help. There was, and, and the season just kept going on. And you thought you were going to walk through some threshold and, and it just was like a tunnel that sort of, sort of closed in. But then it became just sort of this arid, dry land. You were there for a long period of time. And then you look back and you realize that God was with you the whole way. And you realize that you depended upon him in ways. And now you are more dependent upon him in ways that you, you ever could have been because he took you through the desert. You learned to depend on him. That might have happened last week or last year or five years ago. Can you tell that story? Or that time when there was a crisis and you didn't know what to do. You didn't know how to, how to pray. You didn't know what to say. You didn't, didn't know where to turn, but you prayed anyway. And you cried out to God in a way that just said, Lord, just be with me. Help me. Guide me through this, this time. And you look back on that, that story and you realize he was there. He helped you. You, 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 you learned through the crisis, like a burning bush, you learned to remove your shoes and to depend upon him, a story of dependence. Or that time when circumstances got so difficult and you began to get heated up like you're on the anvil. And as a result, he was able to shape and shape and shape you in ways you didn't think that you could change or be shaped before. Stories of not just decision, with stories of dependence. This is what life in the spirit is all about. It's not me and Jesus, though. You see, life in the spirit, life together, exposes those places where we do need to change. It, it gives us wise counsel through those desert periods. And sometimes it's iron sharpening iron when you're on the anvil. Life together. The means by which God shapes the light. The means by which we learn to depend upon life in the spirit and not life on our own, autonomously making all our choices. Here's, here's how uh, William Cowper puts it in one of his poems. He says, his purpose, his purposes for those difficult things that you're experiencing or that I've just described, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Now, maybe you're in one of those seasons. Maybe you fear going into one of those seasons. But what I'm saying is, is that life together can give you the encouragement through those seasons to learn life in the Spirit. Not to try and try and try again, but to depend and then to tell the story because his purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud in the moment may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Holy God, how we thank you that you are willing to count the cost yourself and to pay it. That God, you did not consider equality with God as, as something to be grasped, Jesus, you humbled yourself and became obedient unto death on the cross. And so, Lord, this morning, we would exalt your name 
to the highest place. And we would bow our knee in dependence 